0: Hello and welcome back to The Play's The Thing here on the Close Reads Podcast Network. I'm David Kern and I am joined by Matt Bianco and Tim McIntosh for our continuing conversation about King Lear. Today we are going to discuss King Lear Act 5, the conclusion of the play. And then next week we are going to answer listener questions. So if you have a question that you would like us to discuss for next week, something that's just burning a hole inside of you, then go onto to the Close to Reads Facebook page and post the question there with the hashtag... Uh, King Lear, and we will try to get to as many questions as we can. If you'd like to email a question, you can also do that as well, and you can email them to me at david at com. I think that's a couple of... That's probably enough ways for people to get questions to us, I would think. Tim, Matt, before we dive in, how's it going? Matt, you're in New York still? Yep. How's that going?
1: Good. I've been uh, working on my dissertation, and Starting to see Yankee games, so it's been a good
0: good week. How's the progress on the dissertation going? I'm almost done. Nice, almost you- done. Maybe four thousand words
1: left.
0: Ooh, nice! Oh wow, good for you, Matt. You might get them done before the game tonight. <laughs> know, that's my goal. <laughs> nice, nice. And then you get to edit, Matt. Huh?
2: Yeah, then I get Matt. To edit. How many? How many games have you seen? Two. I got one more. Um, are they all against the Red Sox? Yes, which is why I went to all three, because I was like, I don't know
1: which one to buy a ticket to. I don't want to go to the one they lose.
2: Yeah, I'm right. just
1: going to go to all three. And then so far, they,
2: uh, they're sweeping them. But one game left. So. And, nice. and where are you staying? Are you staying in a rustic cabin in upstate New York? That's kind of what I'm hoping for you, but I don't know if that's true.
1: <laughs> no, I'm staying at uh, an Airbnb, maybe ten minute walk from the stadium. I could see the stadium from the oh, wow. steps. Um it's uh in, yeah just in that in that area, that neighborhood right around the stadium.
2: What a trip. What a great trip.
1: It was it's incredible too. It was like forty five bucks a night. So so the oh, real no question, way.
0: The real question yeah. though is whether you can you whether you can tie this into the tragedy of King Lear. That is. Mm-hmm. That is the real question because
1: we are currently engaging in small talk, which is not my favorite. uh,
2: My favorite topic. So, Um,
0: even though it's small talk about your dissertation
2: and the Yankees, I would feel like if there's any small talk that's going to work for you, that's what it is. (laughs) Right. Well, it's yeah. It it makes it a little bit easier to endure
1: because I get to talk about myself. But. (laughs)
0: Well, so we are here to talk about King Lear. And so one of the things I want to start with is just to ask you a question about each of your reading experiences with this. Because I think that one of the things that happens when you read a play, and I think we see this with our students in particular, or people who are just kind of new to a play. I I had not read this in a long time. And so this was happening to me. And I think when you're reading a play, you're searching for um, resolutions. You're searching for... You know, sort of catharsis and cohesion and all those different things that happen with the conclusion of a play, with wrapping it up. And so, as you enter Act Five, there are probably questions that are sort of burning in you, things that you, you know, are really searching for answers to, or things that you um, want to see resolved. It could be thematic, it could be plot based, it could be character based, whatever it is. So, I'm curious if, for either of you, as you're kicking into the beginning of Act 5, if you had something like that that was drawing your attention and something that you were, that you were really looking for as you were entering Act 5. Tim, was there anything like that for you? Well, I, I,
2: we got the beginning of it at the end of Act 4. I wanted to see the reunion between Lear and Cordelia. Is that too obvious, David? Is that too obvious of a thing? Are you looking no, for something no, a little no. bit deeper? Can, okay. So there can be predictable, Sam. So predictable. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I know. Can there,
0: can there be too obvious for something like this? I don't. I don't think so. Okay. This particular question. Yeah, that's what I was looking for. So, what were you looking? I mean, what was it that you were kind of hoping for as you were reading? It? I don't know. You've read it before, but when you Say you were looking yeah. for that 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 um what what did you say reconciliation was the, the yeah yeah or or reunion the reunion was there something cathartic you were looking for or were you looking for the how you know how does he execute that
2: I wanted Lear to say I'm sorry and I wanted Cordelia to forgive him that's everything that I wanted mm. um, which which. I think happens. It's mm-hmm. what happens. And it's beautiful. I think that um, her forgiveness of him is, she's eager and ready to offer it. And he, to me, he feels like this is the first moment of the play that we almost see him um, in, a, in a playful mood. He's been playful and crazy before, but now at the end when he's talking about you know the two of them acting as god's spies and gossiping about court news he just seems like he's almost in his youth again just happy to be with his favorite person in the world hmm.
1: and that's in prison like let's stay mm-hmm. here in prison and live forever and do these things but we'll be together.
0: Yeah. yeah that's uh
1: that's a cool thing hmm.
0: So we we'll have to, let's, I want to come back to that for sure, because um, yeah, I one of the things I'm curious of, curious about is, do we, despite the tragedy of the ending, do we manage to get? Does Shakespeare manage to give us um, the sort of catharsis that I think we're looking for when we read this play? So, um, and I think that ties into what you're saying there. Um, yeah. Because the next scene that Cordelia appears in, she is not alive um, uh-huh. spoiler alert for those who have not yet read act four but are listening or act five but are listening to this episode for some reason um matt what about you is yeah. there a is there a um something you were looking for a question that was burning inside of you that wait, as you started reading act five two i think the, of, the more obvious of the two perhaps is um
1: i wanted to know how or if and and then how order was going to be restored to this broken up kingdom. Um, So I was looking for that. And then the other thing is I wanted to see what in the world was going to happen with Edmund. Um, How is, how is justice going to come about for Edmund of all people? Right. Mm -hmm. For some reason, for some reason I wasn't so concerned with Goneril and Reagan because I think i just knew that it would happen i just knew they would get justice like i didn't need the ending i i, didn't, I wasn't curious about it i just assumed the ending would give it to me hmm. but with edmund i was more curious like is he going to do what's he going to give us with edmund and i was i was um, pleasantly surprised with how that all worked out hmm. so let's that's let's something I can, i'd like to discuss
0: let's Let's dive right into that justice question then and let's do it through the lens of what you just said about Goneril and Reagan. Because I don't want to forget about them and I feel like if we go in another direction, it's possible we could. So why, you said that you expected them to get what they deserved. Why is that? Like, why? what about their characters? What about the way Shakespeare presents them and presents the drama led you to feel like pretty confident that they were going to get what's coming to them?
1: Um, you know, th- that's interesting because from act one, uh, the only sympathy I ever felt toward the two daughters was a sympathy of like, like, you know, father's doing something that's kind of bizarre to them and then they're just kind of taking advantage of it or they're just responding with what he's asking for. And and insofar as they're doing that, it doesn't seem to be anything particularly evil. But I kinda of got the impression from the from the very beginning that there was some sort of conspiracy between them. And so I never I never really felt like I never really felt like they were gonna be the good guys. Like there was gonna be some turn of events that was gonna cause them to be good.
0: Do you think that so be- I- Go ahead. Well, I was just going to ask if you think that that's because they're not because they're kind of one dimensional, and so like the um, the likelihood of them changing like was too like I don't mean I don't mean that Shakespeare created characters poorly, but just that you know only so many characters in a play become truly multidimensional. So was there were they like? lacking in terms of their dynamics. And Tim, you can jump in here if you have comments on any of this. Yeah.
1: Let, let me say that I think that's because of the way I read them as one dimensional characters. I don't know if Shakespeare actually wrote them that way because other people don't seem to have the same um, the same bad taste in their mouth towards big daughters that I do. You know, other others seem to have sympathized with them more than I did. And um and so maybe there was something more there to be sympathetic sympathetic towards them. I just never, I just never saw it myself.
0: Hmm. Sam, what do you think? Do you do you feel that sympathy, like, or uh, towards Goneril and Reagan? or did you feel like, like Matt did early on? Oh, they're going to get what's coming to them, um, and it, that's kind of not really part of the drama.
2: I, I felt like Matt did. Hmm. I think they were. I mean, I can sympathize with the situation that they were put in. I just can't mm-hmm. sympathize with their response to it. And mm-hmm. I I did hope and expect that they would get some form of justice by the end. And I'm also with Matt. I saw them as being simple characters. Maybe, I don't know about one-dimensional. I know that Matt just picked that, you picked that phrase probably... In haste, I might choose not simple as in dumb, but simple as in they have a very simple, focused purpose in the play. Um, and it's yeah. to be it's to be bad daughters who are usurping the kingdom, like in a strange way, usurping the kingdom that was given to them.
0: Hmm. There's something sort of. You know, there's a sort of archetype in movies where, like, this character gets in and again o- gets in over their head with some person who's a real bad guy, and then they end up paying for it. And it, is it that kind of thing, where oh, 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 oh. we're like Edmund's the real bad guy who's actually cunning and conniving, and they think they are, and they kind of get in over their head, and then next thing they know, that's it, such oh, a great God. question.
2: Mm-hmm. I, I read them think- as they're bad and conniving from the get go, and. Edmund kind of, kind of overpowers them because he's a little bit more of a subtle serpent than they are. And they're subtle and they're good, but he's just a little bit better at it.
0: Do you see the, do you see, who do you see as, do you see Edmund as manipulating them or are they using him?
2: I I see him as using them because the whole, he's kind of, making allusions to each of them that you know, they'll be married. Mm-hmm. Um, and they end up squabbling against each other regarding Edmund. And I think from my, from my point of view, Edmund is doing all of that just because he wants to be the head of the kingdom. I and mean, he even says in that late monologue, which one should I, shall I marry yeah, one, I one both neither That's
0: in scene one, act five, scene one of act
2: mm-hmm. five. Yeah. For me, that's, he doesn't care. He doesn't care about either one of them. Both of them are just pawns in this chess game that he's playing. And if he checkmates, then that means he's the king. He's the head of everybody. Then he'll have the luxury of deciding what he's going to do, whether he's going to marry one, both, neither of those women.
1: Yeah. And that, that scene, that, that moment too with Reagan and Edmund in Act Five Scene 1 where he says, where she says to him um, well, she asks him have you been with my sister? Uh-huh. And, and then he says no by mine honor, madam. And then she says I never shall endure her. Dear my lord, be not familiar with her. Mm-hmm. Like there's almost a kind of um begging there where he has he has taken the upper hand right. now right
2: mm-hmm. yeah he's got the power they, in the and, relationship he's been
1: reduced Like she if she was using him it's not that's not what's happening at this point it's she's now being used by him
0: hmm. yeah so then how do we respond to their at their ultimate demise? Like what is that what's the just way for us to respond to to what happened to them?
1: Well that's where pity comes in, right? Because they basically destroy each other. Oh, over yeah. him over like they tear themselves apart over well, over the whole thing, but especially like he's kind of the impetus of, of it all. And 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 then that's where I feel pity toward them, like like, I mean, yes, they got what was coming to them, but but they should have been able to foresee all this. They should have been able to, they should have been able to respond appropriately to avoid it and and acknowledge their, you know, the sin the, the, their own wickedness and 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 the the direction that this life was going to take them and, and prevent it, but. So, I kind of like, I wish I like it had to happen and it's justice, I think, but there's pity there because it didn't have to happen. Like, they could have gotten out of it, you know?
2: Isn't it a strange thing? I totally concur, Matt. It's a strange thing that you want justice to happen. You know, kind of from the beginning, I wanted Reagan and Goneril to. Pay to get the yeah to pay for what they did to Cordelia, for what they did to ah. Lear, for what they did to their husbands, what they did to the murdered servant, you know, and then to it comes other. around yeah, to each other right, and then it comes around and you get it and and it's pity you think it didn't have to be this way, it did not yeah. have to be this way, and it's a funny thing, I mean I guess about any form of proper justice is that there is kind of a mourning, not kind of, there's a mourning associated with it. Like, okay, things are made straight again. Things are put in their proper order again, but none of this had to be this way.
0: Hmm. Right. The, as readers, that it's an interesting bind i don't know situation to be in to kind of hmm. balance our responses you know I th- it brings us back to the famous line from the love of the rings which i think that, that the movie did pretty well right where they're talking about gollum frodo and gandalf are talking about, yeah gollum. and um mm-hmm. and gandalf says what, what is gandalf he says he counsels him against um i suppose judging gollum too harshly but to look on him with with pity right i don't remember the exact yeah. words of it yeah um but when someone deserves like that idea of someone deserving something that that they've kind of i don't know forced upon themselves caused to happen to themselves yeah. um there's like the universe sort of demands or the world of literature anyway sort of demands a restoration of order as matt put it right but then but yeah. then, despite that as there's like, as empathetic humans, that pity comes up. And it's an interesting, I don't know, bind to be put in where you're trying to balance the desire for justice with the desire for um, mercy, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. And it seems like that this act trades in that a lot. But that's one of the big themes of this act because Yeah, there's a lot of people for whom the end result was not deserving, right? Cordelia, for example. Right. And just when it seems like she's going to get saved, she, you know, it. she doesn't. <laughs> um, yeah. And, and then the servant who followed Edmund's orders, Lear takes him out. Um, and then, you know, what happened to Gloucester and, and so forth. Um, Edmund is killed by his own brother. Um, there are so many of these turns where... It didn't have to be that way, as as you said, Tim. Yeah. So, do you think? I mean, what is? How do you how do you think Shakespeare wants us to? I don't know. It goes back to the feelings thing. Like, what? How do we feel about the way? Yeah. And and what does that tell us about? Um, I mean, what does that cause you guys to think about? Like, how, how your kind of emotional response to it? How How does that strike you? And and then how does? What does it make you? Um, consider about your own reading of it. Like, do you, do you come out of it? Do you, do you, how much of it, like how much of it do you feel like justice is served? And that gives you a sense of catharsis and and the restoration of order. Matt, you brought up that idea. So at the end of it, do you feel like order has been restored? Do you feel like there's been catharsis? Do you feel content with the ending despite the tragedy? Or is there something in the tragedy that leaves you not, not wanting more, but feeling like everything is left in disorder? Does that make sense? Like, it's different than just feeling like, oh, I'm sad for these people. Mm-hmm. Right. That there's still, the, you know, yeah. there could be a tragedy that still, the, the, it ends in a sense of order, you know? I absolutely
1: love this ending. Uh, the ending itself, like, you know, I, I, I recognize that King Lear is a tragedy. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, it's probably called The Tragedy of King Lear. It's like formal title, right? I don't know. does so usually do that yeah yeah he being will my buddy will um, <laughs> the uh you know it's so the tragedy of king Lear it it like i recognize that it's a tragedy, but to me, the ending it's so i like your word there I think there final but um cathartic that um yeah it, it's Aristotle like he made it up um <laughs> it's so cathartic that it almost feels like a comedy to me. Insofar as like, not it's funny, obviously, but in the Shakespearean sense or in the the ancient sense of, um, you know that well in the Shakespearean sense that it ends with 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 you know a wedding or a coronation or some sort of you know kind of momentous joyous occasion. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, Lear ends with Albany, who was one of the bad guys, but well, not immediately he wasn't, and then he kind of was by association and then he wasn't, right? Yeah. And then he says, you know, from all of these of all of these dead bodies and stuff, bear them from hence to is the very end of Act five scene three. Our present business is general woe. And he turns to Kent and Edgar, like the, the two best guys in the whole story, right? Besides Ophelia, of, of the men Cordelia. the two best men, right? The what cool, yeah, what I say, Ophelia.
0: Yeah, yeah. Edmund I mean,
1: Yeah, besides Cordelia, Yeah. So so Kent is the guy that, you know, Lear banishes and then he comes back in disguise so that he can continue to serve the king that he loves. And then Edgar is the guy that Edmund obviously frames, but then comes back in disguise in order to, you know, help reestablish order and to reestablish reestablish order specifically between him and his father. And he said he turns to them and he says, Friends of my soul. You Twain rule in this realm, and the Gord state sustain. And right. so Albany, who, who clearly could just, you know, has an army there and could just become make himself king, recognizes that he's not the right man for the, for the job, and turns to Kent and Edgar and offers it to them. And he refers to it as the Gord state sustain, right? Gord, in most the way, most especially meaning we just saw all these people get stabbed literally gored right um but the state itself is wounded but it's also it's also torn apart um it, it, for no other reason prim- than primarily because Lear did that to it but then the daughters you know continue to to tear it apart then mm-hmm. Kent replies I have a journey sir shortly to go my master calls me I must not say no and Kent, in, in that moment, it's like Kent realizes you can't heal this torn apart and wounded state. Yeah. By keeping it torn apart and wounded, you can't have two people trying to lose it. That was the very thing that caused this to begin with. And so he he refuses the offer. And then Edgar says, "The weight of this sad time, we must obey. Speak what we feel, not what we ought to say." The oldest have born most, have born most. We that are young shall never see so much, nor live so long. And then he accepts it almost begrudgingly, right? I mean, out of out of a sense of responsibility, like he, it's required of him. He accepts the rule. And it, it kind of reminds me of like um the horse and his boy, where hmm. the boy finds out that he's the twin and that he has to become the king. And then Aslan is talking to him about it and says, You know, you you do know, I think it does but somebody's talking to him, and you know, this is the nature of what it means to be the son of a king, right? You have to become the king. Um, so that we have, you know, by our roles, we have responsibilities, and Edgar is willing to bear the weight of that responsibility in order to sustain the Gord state, but primarily to heal it, and and heal it in the right way, right? So Ed, there's, a, there's, a, it, it's not, it's not. It doesn't take place in the story that there is this coronation of edgar that's going to follow we you know and then the healing of of the gore state and and i love that that vision that that picture that shakespeare leaves us with so it's um it's it's a very cathartic ending for me I'm, mm. i absolutely love it
0: yeah the beginning of the play begins with the division and it concludes with bringing it all back together Mm -hmm. tim do you do you so but okay tim do you do you what's your response to that do you agree with that is it cathartic for you and then do you feel like you know justice has been has been served
2: i do i agree with matt i think the ending is is so satisfying but it's hard for me to name why it's so satisfying, because it is so sad. I mean, all tragedies are sad, but Macbeth, when Macbeth gets his just desserts, it's not sad in the way that this is sad. This is just, it's borderline nihilistic for me. Yeah, um,
0: none of this had to happen.
2: None of this had to happen. And even... So, I think it's in the 18th century, performances of Lear change, and they keep Cordelia alive. Hmm. I mean, like, they just, no one can tolerate the ending of it. And I can, I mean, for someone who loves Shakespeare, you know, enough to consider it borderline holy text, and I do not want the ending messed with, man, I can sympathize with the desire to... Soften the blow at the end by keeping Cordelia alive, I absolutely get it, nevertheless, having her die and having Lear die of heartbreak afterwards and having the kingdom in tatters i mean i can 't express why, but it is it's heartrending and it's strangely satisfying, and I think part of the reason that it's it's um difficult for me how do i say this i don't always i don't understand why it's so satisfying because i think there's a just a
0: little bit there's a dissonance almost yeah there is and i think it's tragic
2: yeah and i think it's kind of that the last lines let us speak now how we feel not um not Coming what up. we should say. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a. Lot, that's part of the reason why it's so satisfying. It just feels like just this kind of spilling of the cup that's inside me, and just kind of letting everything, you know, run over. Whereas, again, to compare it to Macbeth, there's a little bit of a there's a kind of a moral lesson in Macbeth that, you know, one who Overreaches in ambition is one that ultimately has to pay the penalty. I don't feel like that we even get the satisfaction of that moral lesson in Lear. Cordelia is reunited with her father, but it's but it's not, it lasts five minutes. That's all that we really get from Cordelia being like this good, noble, virtuous person. And Edgar. Edgar also, good, noble, the loyal son, man, he gets hung with this kingdom that's just a disaster. I mean, it's more like like Matt was saying, it's does he really want to take on this kingdom? Uh, no, he's got to do it more out of duty. So even like, like the satisfaction of other tragedies where even Richard Third where we see um, where justice is an opportunity for us, to, the attendee. To benefit in some way, to see someone go through um, acts of injustice and to pay for it and to think, um, I need to learn from this. I need to not repeat that mistake. There's not a whole lot of that in Lear. Hmm.
1: Well, I mean, except Kent learning not to, you know, there's, there's a parent learning of Kent not to keep the kingdom divided. That happens, I guess, but that's about as close as you get to it, right?
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, you could make the argument, you know, that Goneril and Reagan are sort of, you know, like moral lessons. It's just, it does not seem front and center. It seems pushed so far to the side. Whereas with Macbeth, with Richard the Third, those feel to me like right in the middle, a tragic character having made tragic choices pays the ultimate price. Those Those lessons seem front and center all the lessons in this play seem periphery huh. hmm. more subtle yeah
1: what you know, you you raised something that is a question for me there, can i ask a question here
2: yeah yeah man you're on the plays the thing
1: <laughs>
2: so um
1: okay in shakespeare's plays and I, I think this is probably true of many of them It's it's definitely true here. Something happened that, or a a thing keeps happening that doesn't happen in, say, a novel—not a good one. Um, In a novel, a, a novel would never just come along and say, "You've been sleeping with my sister," and then, and then I'm supposed to believe it. Like I would, like the play would give, or a novel would give me would either show me that that's been happening or would give me clues that it's possible that it's been happening, right? But here, we have Oswald, right? Is that the guy's name? The servant guy? Yeah. Um, He, it it comes out, if if we believe Reagan, it comes out that he's been having uh, an affair with Donneril. And then Edmund apparently has been, been having an affair with Donneril. Or I mean, even if they haven't confirmated anything, uh she's to the point where she's asking him or she's calling her, herself his wife. Mm-hmm. Right. And even if she signs that one letter, your I you know, I want to say wife. Um and then and then Reagan somehow knows and, and then assumes that he's that he's gone as far as to confirmate it. Um, asks him about it he says he hasn't which you know we know he's not necessarily to be believed although he might be in this case but typically he's not and then um, and then you know then she starts saying that she wants to be with him and there's this very weird like jump from Edmund is a stranger to these people to they're in love with him and want uh-huh. to spend the rest of their lives with him uh-huh. and want to kill each other over them uh-huh. over him, right so like how do how how is it that Shakespeare does things like that, right where like like there's this there's this movement from stranger to love of my life that takes place in, in no time, and with very little um very little showing us that that's happening more of just telling us that it's happening yeah. And then, and then how does that correspond or relate to something else like what you were saying that, you know, there's this reconciliation between Lear and Cordelia that lasts all of five minutes. Like, uh-huh. and, you know, what is the effect of time on, because of the play, right? It's being performed. So time is, time is kind of wonky, right? So how yeah. do, so as a player, tell me what, how to understand all that.
2: The There's a something that actors say about Shakespeare in that they say Shakespeare has no subtext. And I think that's true. He just, he tells you everything. So if the way that a character is feeling at the beginning of the scene, if it's important to the scene, then Shakespeare just has them speak to the audience and say, or speak to another character and say, um i want this and i'm or i'm feeling that and there are occasions that you see subtext but it's kind of uncommon for shakespeare everything's just up front and i don't know i don't know the reasons why exactly i don't know if that was a convention i don't know if it's something that shakespeare just found so useful in the crafting of his plays that he was just really consistent with it i don't know the reason but I think it's true. There's just very, very little subtext. You just, you play the words. The other thing, I think the reason that the sisters fall in love with Edmund, I mean, Shakespeare is notorious for having characters fall in love with each other in an instant. I mean, the most obvious example being Romeo and Juliet, but, um, as you like it, all of the characters are falling in love with each other. And it happens within 30 seconds of them being on stage. And I think that Shakespeare kind of thinks that, that there's some, there's some lines. in as you like it, where I think it's Orlando, it's not Orlando. Anyway, one of the characters compares, um, love to, a um, to being mad. It's being afflicted with a madness. And it's better to kind of like lock the person up and put them in chains so they suffer a little bit less the madness of love. And I think, again, Mm -hmm. whether Shakespeare believes that true love is always a form of madness or love at first sight is always a form of madness. I'm reluctant to say because he is such Shakespeare is such an equivocator, but it's at least a, Mm -hmm. a theme in his plays that is he hits on all the time, all the time. Love is madness. It, it afflicts you. People fall in love at the drop of a hat. It happens instantaneously. And I think the, the sister's affection for Edmund is even more adrenalized because they see him becoming the head of the state. They see like they want to get with the winner. They want to get with the guy who's going to be the ultimate boss, and so that raises the stakes even more for them.
1: He becomes more valuable to them, right?
2: Yeah, right.
1: As a as a suitor, right? Yeah. So so as a result, though, like for a reader, especially if I'm if I'm more accustomed to stories yeah. and novels and, and stuff where where those things are not just it's not just given to me and demanded that i accept it right i i'm typically accustomed to it being shown to me having that subtext as you said then when i encounter when i encounter somebody's falling quickly into love with another person um instantaneously even or 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 even repentant instantaneously or very quickly right. Yeah, Um, I tend to. I I I find that those those moments become hard to believe for me, or maybe maybe better put, hard to believe for my students. Like when I'm teaching, when I'm teaching much ado about nothing, it is very difficult for most of my students to believe that Claudio actually loves Hero because he falls for her so quickly, and then it is very difficult for them to believe that Claudio. Is genuinely repentant at the end because mm-hmm. it happens so quickly, um, and so and, and it happens without any subtext, right? So it becomes unbelievable, and then they have the they have some of the most bizarre interpretations or understandings of the play because because they're not willing to accept this thing that, that Shakespeare had just said. Yeah, and this is what happened. You have to accept it, right? And so that could happen here. Where it could become unbelievable that anyone genuinely loved anyone, yeah, or that anyone has genuinely repented.
2: Can I express some sympathy with your students? I mean, I, yeah, and, and maybe you've got some sympathy also for them. I saw a production of, um, uh, sorry, the play you were just talking about, Much Do About Nothing. And so to really quickly go over, the plot is um, Hero and Claudio.
0: Our next play, by the way.
2: Oh, good. Okay. So Hero and Claudio fall in love. At the same time, they're kind of trying to get, or some other characters are trying to get Benedict and Beatrice together. They're the famous, like, super witty um, opponents that end up falling in love (laughs) by the end of the play. So Hero is an enemy of heroes goes to Claudio and says, hey, hero has been cheating on you. Claudio goes, he believes he's mistaken that hero is in fact cheating on him. They get to the altar and he leaves her at the altar. It's brutal. It's absolutely brutal. brutal. The play goes on and then they are reunited at the end they get married at the end, and it's a, I think it's a triple wedding. Um, Beatrice and Benedict get married. And I think there's another couple, right, Matt, that end up getting married. Okay. Um, so, my sympathy with your students. I saw a first class, like ultimate professional production in Ashland, Oregon, of Much Ado About Nothing. At the end of the play, uh, after the weddings take place, they have Hero go to one side of the stage. They have Claudio go to the other side of the stage and their relationship, even though they're married, ostensibly married, you can see when the lights go down, the way that they're looking at each other, the divorce is just, it's just a matter of time. The yeah. The marriage at the end, again, this is the way it was staged, not necessarily the way, I don't think this is the way that it's written. The way that it was staged was, this is not a plausible reunion for a modern audience. We just don't believe this. Right. And we and they staged it that way. And I I had a long talk with my Gutenberg students about it, and they I think found it much more plausible than Shakespeare's version of it, than the typical reunion at the end in which yeah. it's happily ever after. So yeah, I'm I'm <laughs> sympathetic with you, and I'm sympathetic with your students about that. So
1: so, uh, two, two points, I guess, or uh, a point and a question. The, the thing that happened with my class, um, we watched the movie version with um, Kenneth Branagh. Yeah. And the guy that plays Claudio, the guy, he's also in that TV show House, uh, mm. he's not a good actor. Mm. And he, he, the way he presents the, I mean, the way he portrays the Repentance, is not believable. Uh, and so my students were all like, no, nope, it's not real. Yeah. then we went to a production of it at the School of the Arts in uh Winston Salem, North Carolina. And the actor there was incredible. Huh. I mean, totally credible. I like, guess is what I mean. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, right. And <laughs> and <laughs> he portrayed the repentance scene. Very credibly, and then my students all changed their mind. stopped. Because, okay, so,
2: because So Matt, when, when you say he played it credibly he was a really good actor and he played it credibly was it total repentance? Is that what the difference was? It, they, it was they believed that he was genuinely sorry for having
1: yeah. for having stilted her at the altar. And, and doing it so publicly, and that he uh, genuinely felt love toward her. Yeah. So, so the, the question, though, is: I mean, okay, setting aside that different actors can make can make those scenes more or less believable, or that different productions can interpret those scenes as whether whether they should be believable or not. Yeah. Um, does. Shakespeare expects us to believe those. I think he does. So, is there is there something because of either the nature of the way he writes he, he writes that, as you were saying earlier, I think initially, and perhaps because of the nature of plays and the way they're performed, that they they either they either don't or can't have all of that subtext, and and so sometimes we have to just be told that, and, and then we have to just believe it. Yeah,
2: I, t- I I have a strong opinion about this. I think that Shakespeare's plays because they're so psychologically astute. I mean, profoundly, he is the ultimate psychologist for me, he understands human nature and he conveys it. And because of that, it's tempting to say he's writing in a realistic vein. He is a, he is a writer of the real. But then you read the words and you're reminded, oh, no one actually talks like this. I and mean, even the elevated Elizabethan um, royalty, they didn't speak this beautifully. They didn't speak in, in like the meter that's so clearly articulated in Shakespeare's plays. So I think that his, his psychological ability and his realism in that realm makes sometimes people think that he's writing straight up realistic plays where I see it as a mashup of like lyrical, Gorgeous, exaggerated, um, I'll call it something like fantasy, combined with a true psychological realism. And so I think that when two characters get together in a fashion that we find somewhat unrealistic, I think that's part of the conceit of Shakespeare's stage, is that he's kind of allowed himself that conceit. Because it's not just realism that he's doing.
1: So, I, 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 can you spell that out for me a little bit more plainly, or, or connect the back a little bit clearly? I, I, are you saying that, that there that there there should be a sort of mystery to whether it's really
2: happening or? No, I, I think I think that the implausibility of it, the implausibility of two characters falling in love instantaneously, or of Goneril and Reagan instantaneously falling for Edmund, I think that is and I hope you hear this word the right way. I think that's part of the fantasy of Shakespeare's stage. I think Ooh. We know that yeah, people do fall in love instantaneously, but it rarely looks really as accelerated as that. It looks yeah. it's still more subdued, but I think because Shakespeare, because of all the kind of what I will call what I'm calling fantastical elements, and I don't mean dragons, although there's there are things like that in his later plays, sure. I just mean it's 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 exaggerated. It's lyrical. Things happen on the stage that are accelerated versions of human life. They're not straight up realistic versions of human life. Almost fairy taleish. Yeah, almost
0: fairy taleish. Well, let me jump in here. Um, isn't well, we were having such a such great conversation, David. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm just the point. I'm just the point guard. I just passed it off and let you guys. Uh, so. <laughs> There's a couple of times I thought about jumping in, but then I was like, eh, this is good. I'll let them go. But isn't some of this just suspension of disbelief stuff? Like we don't actually have to believe that it happened with no, like there's a lot of things that happen in life between the scenes. So while there's no subtext, I don't, I mean, are we supposed to, I mean, there's nothing magical about it. We just suspend disbelief right. and, and you have is- to roll with it. Readers who are new to Shakespeare,
1: either you know younger students or um, or adults that are coming to them fresh new, because we're so accustomed to those things being spelled out for us, shown yeah. to us, that when they when they're not in a Shakespeare play, we end up not believing something that we we
2: perhaps ought to be believing. For exception. Yeah. So I, I think in in the Hobbit. For example, we are set up to suspend belief from the beginning pages of the play so that, you know, when we meet meet a talking dragon that hoards gold, everything is set up so that we can very easily suspend disbelief because it's the rules of the world that Tolkien has created. And my argument is Shakespeare has set up a world that is in many instances like a fairy tale, but we, we lose track of that because of his great insight and ability into human nature. And we think he hasn't set us up for, for a fairy tale. He has set us up for straight up realism. And my argument is, Mm. well, I think it's a mashup of those two things, but we lose track of the, fantasy world the the fairyland part of it because he's so good on the psychology. And and, and the elevated language comes in as that reminder to
1: the yes. fantasy part of it. Yes. Okay. Okay. Now I see it. Now I see it. That's good. I like that. So that that, if I may, connect this back to Lear is my question about Edmund. When you were asking David earlier about what we were looking for, you know, in the end, and Edmund was my question, my character that I questioned about because Edmund has, you know, in the first part of the act, there's the whole, as we were talking about earlier, the whole, you know, Edmund and, and Reagan and Edmund and Donner and Donner and Reagan and the whole, you know, three-way struggle, that battle between the three. But then you have in scene three, line 145, you have this moment where Edgar is confronting Edmund and they don't know, the one doesn't know who the other is. But Edmund, Edmund says of Edgar, by tongue, some say, of breeding, breeds. Huh. Like, he recognizes that there's something about Edgar that is inherent in his nature. He doesn't use the word nature here, right? Yeah. That his nature has led to this kind of nurturing that makes him speak a certain way and behave a certain way. Um, The thing that he has been denying previously, right? Then, in... Line 202, he says, um, Edgar has, has told his side of the story and, and explained the whole thing with his father and how his, how his father's been blinded and now they, but they've, but they've been reconciled. Edgar has. And Edmund yeah. says, this speech of yours hath moved me mm. and shall perchance do good, but speak you on. You look as you had something more to say? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> then a few lines later, in, in 244, he says, "Well, okay, so then the news comes to him that Goneril and Reagan have both died, in a struggle, in a fight for him. And, and Kent asks why, And Edmund says, "Yet Edmund was beloved." Do one, the other poisons for my sake and offers you herself. All but even so, cover their faces. It's like in that moment, Edmund realizes that the thing that he most wanted was to be loved. Yeah. And now he's realized that he had it. Yeah. Um, Then in 250, he says, well, that section, he says, I pant for life, so he's dying, right? Some good I mean to do, despite of my own nature. Quickly send, be brief in it, to the castle. For my writ is on the life of Lear and on Cordelia. Nay, send in time. So now there's this 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 repentance of I need to do something good. I need to be a good person. I need to I need to to stop what I've set in motion. Yeah. And then in 302 in ko2 um you know the messenger comes in and says that he has died edmund is dead my lord and so here you have like right up until scene three act five scene three you have edmund the evil in every way right yeah from act one scene one all the way through act five scene two then in scene three there's this recognition of of nature and nobility there's this recognition or this this his his willingness to be moved by his father's own story, the realization that he was actually loved, and then a moment of repentance. Does that happen too quickly for us to believe that Edmund truly repented? Mm. Is, and then can that be the justice? Right, that justice for Edmund was. I mean, sure he died, but he died. He died having repented, having learned something from
2: yeah, yeah his his choices. For me, Matt, I didn't find this repentance fantastical because he's dying. you know I mean that's the moment god willing this is your last moment to make a very frank assessment of yourself, and I mean there's a reason there's the deathbed confession is a cliche because it so often happens. And I just took it because death is about to eat Edmund up. That I found this to be pretty realistic. Did you did you find it implausible?
1: Well, my problem is that I believe everything. So <laughs> if, it's, if it's in any way romantic, I believe it. If it's uh-huh. love, I believe it. If it's uh-huh. romance, I believe it. <laughs> you know, so um, <laughs> so i immediately accepted that Edmund had repented and that what he was trying to do good and i loved it and yeah you know if you know it, it brings a tear to my eye and not in the throat and but but i can't imagine teaching this to a more skeptical audience and then saying "Well, he didn't really repent he's he sorry he got caught yeah. That's what he's sorry about. He, of course, yeah. he's repenting. He's dying. Like the deathbed thing would actually make, like you said, the cliché part of it would actually make it less credible for some people, right? That they would say,
2: yeah, of course he's repenting. He's about to die. See, I don't know, Matt, that, you're, that your problem is that you believe all that. I think your problem is you're a Christian and you hope for repentance and redemption. You're know, like, isn't that where that's coming from? yeah I think so i and i'm t te- you I obviously agree, i'm but teasing. That,
1: that your problem is you're a christian <laughs> right seriously i mean that's i think yeah'
2: cause i i i mean I think that we we are predisposed to both want that to both want repentance and to want redemption because we've seen it, and we know it's. A real thing in this world that God's grace descends on people and it affects people, and so the, the we are primed toward that, and I think that's a good thing. I mean, like maybe your students that are a little bit skeptical, maybe part of it is because um, the stories that we tell in contemporary media, even when they're Captain Marvel movies, they're still in the real they're in the vein of realism. And that has something to do, I think, with the reason that your students are skeptical. But I wonder also if some of your students just have not seen maybe what you've seen. Like mm-hmm. an actual redemption that actually, or repentance that actually
1: sticks. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. There's a lack of experience there that um, yeah. could be coloring their, their way of looking at it. But, yeah. Oh, it was believable for you, was it believable
0: for you, David? I don't know. I thought about that a lot. um I think if I so if I saw it in you know portrayed that way in like some contemporary TV show or movie, I probably would feel that it wasn't earned. But I'm reading, but I don't know. I it, it's not as much of an issue for me in Shakespeare. I remember thinking this doesn't necessarily feel earned. But then I also remember, feel, feel like he's not, I I don't, I don't read Shakespeare thinking that I'm getting the full picture of the entire drama as it would play out in the human experience. I feel a lot Mm. more like I'm getting series of scenes meant to relay thematic intention um, and playing out an arc of drama. Does that make sense? And so Mm. I feel like that's where I, in a way, it's a sort of suspension of disbelief for me. Um, so, if, so I buy it in that sense, but I also have a somewhat of a dissonance within me, and I part of me wonders though if that dissonance is something of the point. But it's also speaking to the limitations of the form, right? Um, he tries to tell these big sweeping stories in a way that, in some ways, modern playwrights don't even do. Like if you look at on um, close yeah. reads, we told we did the Glass Menagerie, right? tim yeah and one of the things about the glass menagerie is like it's an exceedingly simple story in a lot of ways there's a deep subtext that's going on but the subtext is is enriched by the simplicity of the narrative itself yeah so you can linger in the subtext because you're not dealing with the sweeping nature of just the plot so to speak but shakespeare engages in these large sweeping narratives these narrative arcs and in order to, to do that to accomplish that within the scope the limitations and the scope of of a play on a stage performed particularly in the 1600s <laughs> um you know he he i think he's working with it just within this the 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 limitations of that form and so we have to adjust for that whereas most playwrights it seems like now like even a neil simon play for example i and I'm no expert on plays by by any stretch of the imagination, but it seems to me like there is a, you know, I mean nowadays you could there's one man plays right, um, yeah. The, the way it's approached, I don't, Tim, you've written a lot more plays, um, and so you you know a little bit and put on more plays, so you know more about the mechanisms of that. But would you say that that's fair? That why absolutely that, that the scope of what Shakespeare is looking for is different.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just look at the the Pulitzer winners and the Tony winners from the last, I don't know, decade. Almost all of, or even just the great plays that are part of the American Pantheon, Almost every single one of them are small family plays. They're not plays about kings and queens and kingdoms falling into dis- disrepair. You
0: know, they're they just, were, they have they a smaller scope. A small scope within that. Yeah. Right. Right. Which I, I don't, I don't mean that as an expression, like I don't mean to express it. It's a flaw or something in Shakespeare. It's just, he's trying to do something different. And that's why I say that I don't, I've never, I, I read it as a series of um a series of scenes that are meant to capture specific moments within a grander arc and so mm. that dissonance for me it is felt but sort of in some ways feels like perhaps the point um but uh, yeah i mean i feel it but i i wouldn't say that i don't buy it if that makes sense like i feel a sort mm. of dissonance but i don't i don't it doesn't strike me as unearned if if that's one way to put it
2: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: but that yeah. that takes us we don't have a lot of time left we're going going for an hour and 15 minutes so let's jump to that Big question that Tim brought up that reunion of Lear and Cordelia. And I'm curious that's it, that's one where her demise is off stage. We get one more scene with the two of them, which you guys mentioned earlier, where Lear is like, let's be here forever in prison together. Um, I spoke, I said that in a way that is much more, much different than what I said, it, but you get the point. But, um, do you let's talk about that idea of it feeling earned again, of it feeling feeling right? Does that does the way Shakespeare presents their reunion, it's abrupt in a way, but it, and it's I don't want to say glossed over, but it happens quickly. And then next thing you know, she's dead. Mm-hmm. Um that lends itself to feeling extremely tragic, right? Just at the moment when they're yeah, they are reunited, then the next scene she dies and she doesn't have to and it happens off screen and we all of a sudden the person says hold on a second go get her um edmund says edmund realizes oh what have i done and then you go to get her and then there's this tear this sort of like terror as a reader of the audience that you realize oh no that you it wasn't kind of in the forefront of your mind or at least it wasn't for me until he said that because you're so kind of yeah. wrapped up in that moment And then you realize it, and all that drama, all that like the most tense scene in the whole play could be when the the guy's running to find her, right? And that doesn't happen. And then he just comes, Lear just comes in, walking in with. So like the most the moment that could be the most tense is the race to go save her, and then getting there Mm -hmm. and she's gone. And then, but instead, we don't get any of that. So, does that does that reunion and then her ultimate, both of their ultimate demises, does that feel earned to you, or is there still a sense of dissonance there? how How did you, how does that resolve your question? And I'll start with you, Tim, because you asked that question.
2: I think it's earned because for me, the whole play has been an anticipation. The whole play since one one has been spent in anticipation of Lear and Cordelia coming back. And the fact that it happens swiftly, uh, it adds to the tragedy because their reunion is so brief. It's just, I, I, I feel like if they had gotten an hour together on stage, things had gone back to normal. Um, you know, their their father and daughter again reunited, and we forget if we got to see too much of that strangely enough i think psychologically the it would not have the impact of the brevity of their time together and the immediacy of their deaths
0: amen <laughs> <laughs> um say the say the last bit again the- i i
2: think that if if Lear and if Cordelia, if they had gotten all of, let's say act five together on stage, then I think that it would not When Cordelia dies. And when Lear dies, it would not be as frustratingly sad because we would have gotten to see too much, um, affection and normalcy okay i think part yeah. of the brevity of it is what makes it hurt so bad
0: and even the fact that cordelia is on stage just in the play in general so rarely yes, um, yes. Like she's like in the first scene and then like what the end and like right in the middle and that's it but she's hovering we're yeah. talking about her she's hovering over it her decision her relationship with her father creates the beginning of all the drama and all that and the fact that she ends up not being on the stage to your point uh-huh. Uh-huh. Is, you know, there's a sort of it's all you know, leave them wanting more, not feeling like it. You're giving them too much. <laughs> you know, I, I've wondered about um
2: if anyone has ever staged the play to have Cordelia on stage the entire I could very easily imagine having Cordelia on stage almost the entire play, whenever Lear is in the throes of his madness, as and just kind of have her as this kind of um mirage of hope that is kind of on the wings of the stage or something like that. Because for me, she feel her presence feels like this kind of angelic presence all throughout the play. She's, I think you would use the word hovering, David, she's hovering over the play. And I wonder what it would look like to actually have her hover like over see, the stage. Yeah. The to actually, see, yeah. What would that look like? Matt, what do you make of, <laughs> of this?
0: I, very vague j- very vague question.
1: I I I feel like I feel like I what you're saying, Tim, I agree with um that that the brevity of the reconciliation or the, the time of re- that they've been reconciled and the interactions of them having been reconciled makes the 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 tragic ending that much more tragic. Yeah. Um I almost think that if it had if it had been like all of Act Five is them together and then the final scene, you know, she dies or something, that it might it might lessen the tragic element of it so much that, that we might not be talking about Camilla today, you know, right now on the podcast. Yeah. It might not have been the first play we decided to do, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um the um uh, the The scene that the scene that gets me is when you know that moment when Lear comes back in on stage, carrying Cordelia in his arms, Edmund, who we know is about to die, has just been carried off, and then Lear comes carrying Cordelia in his arms, and he's howling right mm-hmm. then he says, um, then he says, A plague upon you murderers, traitors, all." I might've saved her. Now she's gone forever. Cordelia, Cordelia, stay a little. What is, what is not her voice was ever soft, gentle. And look, anyways, that, that Cordelia, Cordelia, stay a little reminds me of, of David saying, you know, Oh, Absalom, Absalom. Mm. And and there's this, and, and of course, it, that immediately draws a parallel between the two stories for me, right? Uh, you know, David having not exactly been the best father in the world, and having a lot of division between his sons. Um, but then, but then, mourning, mourning, you know, what happens to one of them, even though that son had turned against him. And then mm-hmm. here you have Lear having caused division between his daughters. Um, and then his daughter dying, and but not for the same reasons, right? Not because she had turned against them, but if anything, because she had turned against her. Um, and then him, him mourning that, him mourning the the shortness of her life, and it was the one life that was so good. Um, kind of praying, begging for her to stay a little. I, I, I just, I love that moment, uh, yeah. especially yeah. amongst them all. But then, even, even the, even the his own death scene when Lear dies of and that's interesting that you said earlier that he he died of a broken heart. Because so I wrote a note in my margins if Leo died of a broken heart. Um right, right. So you, you confirmed it for me, thank you. But, but even <laughs> even that, the first line of that death scene and he says my poor fool is home. Yeah. Oh man. Like even even the 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 love, the concern, the care that he has for the fool, you know, is. Uh, I I just love the way Lear the person ends. I mean, I love the way Lear the play ends, but I even love the way Lear the person ends. Um. Even if even if I wish death wasn't necessarily the outcome, you know.
2: Yeah
0: man this so, play is
2: so sad
0: yeah i was just that's just what i was going to ask i, I was going to say so do you feel content with it though
1: in a bad way in a in a happy way i mean not happy but in a good way
0: Are you guys- and i think we should wrap this up so do you do you have a sense of contentment with with king lear
2: yeah i'm thinking i i mean i think it's a it's a masterwork of world literature. No question in my mind. It's just absolutely superb.
0: So, so you have the, there's a sense of contentment with the craftsmanship.
2: Yes, right. And I'm just like, not as someone who admires world classics of literature, but just someone who is moved by stories. It's hard for me to watch. I mean, I've actually stopped the movie before Lear comes on with Cordelia because I, it will wreck me. Speaking of which we probably should discuss the new one. That's out. Oh yeah. Yeah, man. It's like, don't you guys feel like, like when you like thinking about beginning this play again and reading or watching this play again, I have, to, I just now I had like took a deep breath. Like I was about to begin this long marathon not because of the length, and because of the strenuous, like the emotional strenuousness of it.
0: Mm. Matt, do you feel content at the end?
1: I do. I don't, I don't know. I've never seen it performed. So um, I, don't, I don't know how that will affect me, you know, watching those, those things be played out. Um, you know, reading them and seeing them in my imagination is one thing, but, you know, seeing it, through the imaginative, mind, imaginative minds of great actors, I I might I might find myself as distressed as you sound, Tim. I don't know yeah. that I do yet, but I I might find myself there. But but overall, I love. Um, you know, while I pity Reagan and Donnerill, I I I think that that ending is appropriate for them. I mean, it fits the kind of people that they that they were or that they had become. Um, I like Albany. I like the way Albany ends, uh, Albany life ends, or the storyline ends. I loved, um, you know, I like what happens with Lear and with Edmund and Edgar, Kent. I I mean, just the whole, the the way everything kind of unfolds and wraps up. I think, I, I think, even though I wish things could have been different, I think everything fit with the nature of the characters. Yeah um, you know, kind of what had to happen with the with the possible exception of Cordelia, which I think Cordelia death has has to happen not because of her, but because of because of you know the tragedy that set the whole thing in motion, because of the tragedy that is Edmund. I mean, she has to die because of what Edmund did, right? Because of who Edmund is. Um you know, who Lear is at the beginning, who Edmund is at the end, um, demands uh, kind of requires that she dies. So Everything happens in a way that no, like, nothing seems faked. I mean forced, if that makes sense. And I think that's what makes it so compelling. Yeah, and it's part of an ending for me. Yeah. Um, nothing's forced. We' just do something because he
0: wanted to. Mm-hmm. Well, um, alas, the tragedy of this episode is that it has to end. <laughs> um, Q&A we'll next be, week yeah we'll be back next week I just posted uh, a thread on the Close Reads Facebook group where people can um, post their questions for this King Lear discussion and we'll get to as many questions as we can next week um, you can also email me as I said at david at Cersei Institute you want me to uh, Tim, give me
1: your phone number so they can text you?
0: that would be not <laughs> ideal but
1: I'm pretty <laughs> available on almost every
0: everywhere else in the world so if someone wants to find me they, they can pretty easily um, thanks both to both of you for discussing King Lear um, you have um, been insightful and easy to work with shall I say I have just passed the ball and stood in the corner um, <laughs> so um I just want to say to everybody um, remember you You can subscribe to this show on its own feed if you have not done so already. You can subscribe to our daily poem show. And of course, we have the regular Close Reads show. So make sure you subscribe to all those. We appreciate ratings and reviews. Those go a long way in helping us uh, promote and grow the show. And um, if you are so inclined, you can always support the Close Reads podcast network over at Patreon. It's patreon.com slash close reads. We've got miscellaneous swag for you if you so choose to do that. Um, we, of course, really appreciate all your conversation and comments and everything going on, on the Facebook page. And then if you head over to uh, closereadspods.com, you can sign up for a newsletter where every couple of weeks we're sending out um, news on the show uh, related to the books that we're doing, but also miscellaneous articles and, and other things that offer some context for the books that we're reading and the authors that we're reading. If you're interested in that, again, you can go over to closereadspods.com and just click on the newsletter link and sign up there. That is it for today, though. So thank you to Matt and Tim for, for joining me. For all of us here at the Close Reads Podcast Network and the Cersei Institute, I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening and happy reading. We'll talk to you next week. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter.